1 Samuel chapter 12. We have Samuel's farewell sermon to the fully assembled tribes at Saul's coronation. Hear now the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. God breathed for our prophet, starting at verse 1. And Samuel said unto all Israel, Behold, I have hearkened unto your voice in all that ye said unto me, and have made a king over you. And now behold, the king walketh before you, and I am old and gray-headed, and behold, my sons are with you, and I have walked before you from my childhood unto this day. Behold, here I am, witness against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken, or whose ass have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or of whose hand have I received any bribe to blind mine eyes therewith? And I will restore it you. And they said, Thou hast not defrauded us, nor oppressed us, neither hast thou taken aught of any man's hand. And he said unto them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that ye have not found aught in my hand. And they answered, He is witness. And Samuel said unto the people, It is the Lord that advanced Moses and Aaron, and that brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore, stand still, that I may reason with you before the Lord of all the righteous acts of the Lord, which he did to you and to your fathers. When Jacob was come into Egypt, and your fathers cried unto the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, which brought forth your fathers out of Egypt, and made them dwell in this place. And when they forgot the Lord their God, he sold them into the hand of Sisera, captain of the host of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. And they cried unto the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served Balaam and Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies, and we will serve thee. And the Lord sent Jerubbaal and Bedan, and Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and ye dwelled safe. And when ye saw that Nahash, the king of the children of Ammon, came against you, ye said unto me, Nay, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. Now therefore, behold the king whom ye have chosen, and whom ye have desired. And behold, the Lord hath set a king over you. If ye will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then shall both ye and also the king that reigneth over you continue following the Lord your God. But if ye will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then shall the hand of the Lord be against you as it was against your fathers. 
Now, therefore, stand and see this great thing, which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call unto the Lord, and he shall send thunder and rain, that ye may perceive and see that your wickedness is great, which ye have done in the sight of the Lord in asking you a king. So Samuel called unto the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said unto Samuel, Pray for thy servants unto the Lord thy God, that we die not. For we have added unto all our sins this evil to ask us a king. And Samuel said unto the people, Fear not. Ye have done all this wickedness, yet turn not aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart, and turn ye not aside. For then should ye go after vain things, which cannot profit nor deliver, for they are vain. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it hath pleased the Lord to make you his people. Moreover, as for me, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him with truth with all your heart, for consider how great things he hath done for you. But if ye shall still do wickedly, ye shall be consumed, both ye and your king. Thus far the reading of God's holy word from the book of 1 Samuel Chapter 12, a very important and sad farewell, much truth, much duty contained in this passage. Verses 1 through 13, we have Israel's sin aggravated by the righteous government of Samuel and the mercy of God. Now think about this. When they said no to God as their king, and they said no to Samuel, what grounds did they have for complaint against Samuel or against God? You see, that's exactly what Samuel's showing them. How much evidence stacks up in your favor as against Samuel? Eh, nothing. Zero. You have no evidence against me, he says. Then he goes a step further. How much evidence do you have against God in defecting from him as your king? Still, the answer is nothing. You have no evidence. In fact, all the evidence stacks up against you. All the evidence stacks up for God. You lose, he wins. That's the point of this sermon. Verse 1, I have hearkened unto your voice in all that ye have said unto me. God winked at or judicially blinded them so that he accepted their desire and gave them a king in his wrath. Verse 2, the king walketh before you. My government decreases. I used to walk before you, he says, from my childhood. I, I walk before you no longer. Here, the anointed walks before you. My sons are with you. I have walked before you from my childhood unto this day. Verse 2, my life, as they say, is an open book to you. Witness against me, he says, before the Lord and before his anointed. Let the anointed of God punish me for my covetousness or theft or fraud or oppression or perverting justice. And he says, 
I will restore it you. Samuel is not above the law, in other words. If he is defrauded, if he has taken a bribe, he must pay it back. And so he says, tell me now and I'll repay you. Also note here that there are apologies in the Bible. Now the word apology means to speak or reason from a specific position. Apa is from or off from, and legain is to speak or to reason, to use words in rational dialogue. So apology means I speak so as to defend my position. You see what Samuel's doing? He's offering an apology. We think of apology as, oh, I'm sorry, you tell somebody how you feel. No, apology means I'm going to defend myself. I'm going to say why my position is correct and yours is wrong. You see what he's doing? He's doing an apology. When the Apostle Paul is accused falsely by the Jews of teaching a false religion, he says, hear mine apology, here's my defense. I didn't say anything other than what the God of our fathers taught in the Word of God. He goes forth to prove it from the scriptures. So here is an apology. He is defending himself, and this is right in some times and places, to assert our righteousness, not in the courtroom of God, but in the courtroom of men. David does this too. You'll see it in the Psalms. He compares himself with Saul. Who's righteous and who's wicked? David's righteous, Saul's wicked. So he compares himself to him and condemns and asks God to condemn the wicked while asking God to justify the righteous. So here, here in the court of men, he's presenting the evidence and we must likewise know there is a time to defend yourself. There is a time to apologize. You must not roll over at all occasions to false accusations. Samuel does not roll over. He doesn't pretend that he's at fault just as much as they are. No, he has no faults in his administration of justice. No one can evidence or witness against him. He is defending himself. Everyone present then confirms the justice of his plea, verses 4 and 5. Then notice, he begins to reason with them, verse 6. It is the Lord that advanced Moses and Aaron. Now this word advanced means to create something or to make something with your handiwork, like a poema, a poem that a poet creates from his own imagination. So here, God created of his own decree and purpose these men as deliverers for you. They were his handiwork, God's grace in delivering you. Verse 6, And it is the Lord that brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. He provided redeemers, he provided redemption. Salvation is of the Lord, not of man. And notice here, what is he doing? He's setting up the case. Here's God's side, here's your side. Point number one goes to God. He sent Moses and Aaron. He created them as his handiwork. Point number two, he brought you up out of Egypt. He provided deliverance. And he goes on. He says to them, that he would like to reason with you before the Lord of all the righteous acts of the Lord. Now this word reason is very interesting. It means to judge a case. It means to decide between two sides who plea before a judge. Remember, what is Samuel? He's a judge. He says, now I'm going to judge you concerning the righteous acts of the Lord. Here's God's side, here's yours. 
He's going to condemn them, in other words, of their evil, and he's going to justify God, declaring his righteous acts and all the evidence on his side of the scales to condemn them very heavily. These righteous acts, he says, were done to you and to your fathers, reaching back, as far as what he mentions, almost 800 years to the time of Jacob's descent down into Egypt. Verse 8, Jacob was come into Egypt, the patriarch, his seed, and their descendants all came together. Then notice, your fathers cried unto the Lord. Then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron. They cried for rescue or help. Boethos in the Septuagint, cry out as a man sinking down in the water who cannot swim, help! And God heard their cry and sent deliverance to them. What did they do in return for that point on God's side? What was their counterpoint? What's the evidence that Samuel brings up? You forgot the Lord, he says. You forgot the good things he did. They forgot the Lord and he sold them into the hand of Sisera. Did they deserve it? Yes, because they forgot the Lord. Here again, point in God's favor. He delivered them into the hand of Sisera. We might think of that, well, that, isn't that a bad thing? No, that's a good thing. He's awakening in them a conscience for their sin by chastising, by spanking as a loving father. As we saw earlier, he had adopted them as a nation. And so, of course, he's going to chastise them. Judges chapter 4, we have the evidence of these things, the Philistines in Judges 10 and 13, and Moab in Judges 4. God presents more information here. After God chastises them, what do they do? Verse 10, they cried unto the Lord and said, we have sinned. Now this is very good, and we saw this when we went through the book of Judges. They actually identified the sins that they committed. They didn't cover their sins. They didn't say, oh, isn't life hard? Everybody's so mean to us. No, they said what? We have sinned. And notice, when we look back at Judges, they actually said that they served Balaam and Ashtaroth. They identified their particular sins. We have forsaken the Lord and have served Balaam and Ashtaroth, the lords of the heathens, Balaam, and the female deities, uh, Ashtaroth, the goddess of love, or Venus, as the other heathens called her. We have forsaken the true God and pursued our own pleasures, in other words, our own gods. We have omitted the one thing, forsaken the Lord. We have committed what he told us not to do. We've served Balaam and Ashtaroth. Notice, again, particular sins confessed when they were done. And this is part of genuine repentance. Our confession of faith, chapter 15 of repentance unto life, paragraph 5 says, Men ought not to content themselves with a general repentance, but it is every man's duty to endeavor to repent of his particular sins particularly. Not a general repentance, unless you can't remember. But people will say, I'm sorry for what? Being mean to you. Again, your feelings don't necessarily tell me that you're repentant. It just tells me how you feel. I'm sorry. I could be sorry you punched me in the eye, or I could be sorry I punched you in the eye. It's still the same thing. It just means I feel sorry about it. 
Repentance is where we say, this is the specific sin that I have done. We have forsaken the Lord, and God told us to serve him, and we said, no, I'm not going to do what you say. And we have served Balaam and Ashtaroth. You told us not to do this, and we did it. You see this? Very thorough in their repentance. They confessed their particular sins particularly. And this is extremely important. If you confess general sins, what do you want forgiveness for? I don't know. You were, you were meanie? Is that what you want? Well, did you hit your brother in the face? Okay, please forgive me for hitting you in the face. That's repentance. That's confession. That's acknowledging the particular evil that you did. I was rude and said these wicked words to you. Something of that order. I'm sorry you're a jerk and you misunderstand me. That's what some people do. That's their apology. It's your fault. No. Repentance means confession. Acknowledging the sin. Turning from it. And if we don't name it, how can we turn from it? How could they turn from Balaam and Ashtaroth if they just said, well, Lord, we didn't love you enough? Is that true? Yes, it is true. They didn't love him enough. Is it the specific sin they committed? No. So they say specifically. So that they can say, Balaam and Ashtaroth, we're done with you. We're taking down all your images. We're cutting down your groves. No more of this. Confess your sins particularly. And then they asked God, verse 10, but now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies and we will serve thee. Here, notice another part of true repentance, new obedience. If you deliver us, Lord, we're not just going to go back to our old ways. I'm not going to continue in sin because you've pardoned my sin. No, I will do the new works of obedience. We will serve thee. Remember, we forsook you. Remember, we served Balaam. Remember, we served Ashtoreth, but we're done with that. We're going to serve thee. New obedience. Now notice, the problem with Israel is this. They wait until they've been judged and cursed and plagued and brought under foreign adversaries before they repent. Let us not be so. If God loves us, he will chasten us for our sins. And we must learn to confess them quickly and not cover them over and not refuse repentance. Again, here's the point for the Lord. Verse 11, the Lord sent Jerubbaal and Bedan and Jephthah and Samuel. Point to God, no point for Israel. Now, Bedan, who is this? The word Bedan means he who is of or from Dan. Do you remember a famous judge from the tribe of Dan? There are two, the more famous of them being Samson. That is my opinion that Bedan is Samson. But he lists specific men God sent to save them, this wicked people who left him and forsook him and did their own thing. Again, who wins? God does. The scales keep tipping further and further down and further and further up. God delivered them out of the hand of their enemies on every side. He snatched them out of their paws. He gave them victory and safety on every side. How did they repay him? What did they say they wanted after all these things he did for them? Give us a king so that we may be like the other nations. Here comes Nahash. We need a king now. Wasn't God good enough? 
Didn't he deliver them? All those times you see he's reasoning with them of the righteous acts of the Lord to show the aggravation of their sin. Nay, but a king shall reign over us, they said. Did they need a king? Didn't they have Samuel? Didn't they have Bedan in the past? Didn't they have Jephthah? Didn't they have Jerubbaal? Couldn't God do it again? Let us learn to wean ourselves off of the creature. Let us not put our hope in men, but rather in God himself. He says that his everlasting arms are underneath. What is the safety net we desire? Behold, the Lord hath set a king over you. Verse 13. He gave you a king in his wrath. You chose him in rebellion against God. God has judged you by giving you what you want. Now they will have to live with the evil of their deeds. Samuel then, as a faithful prophet and minister, says in verses 14 through 25, the blessings and the curses before them. He gives them a confirmatory sign. We see the response of the people in fearing God and Samuel and Samuel's closing encouragement to them. He says, if you follow God and do his will there in verse 14, what will happen? What will be the result of following God and doing his will? Then shall both ye and also the king that reigneth over you continue following the Lord your God. What is the chief blessing of obedience? Do you know what it is in the Bible? It's that you continue obeying. It's not the thing that you get, I want this thing, so I'll do the right thing to get this from God. No, the chief blessing of obedience to God is what? Obedience to God. You'll continue doing what God says. If you start and go doing what God says, you'll continue on serving the Lord. Do you know what the chief curse of sinning is? More sin. Continuing on in sin. God judges one former sin with a future sin. He gives men over to worse sins so that they degrade themselves because of their former sins. This is the black chain of reprobation as there is a golden chain of salvation. Sin judged with sin is the black chain of reprobation. And notice the golden chain, obedience and more obedience. You shall continue, both you and your king, that shall reign over you. Let us then fear God. Let us serve God. Let us obey God. Let us not rebel against the Lord. And so we shall continue following the Lord your God. But if they would not listen and do these things, then shall the hand of the Lord be against you as it was against your father. God is a righteous judge. He will not miss this mark. If he threatens judgment, he will bring it. Now, therefore, verse 16, stand and see this great thing urgently with all determination. Stand and see, he says. Is it not wheat harvest today, verse 17? Yes, is the implied answer. Now, in that land of Palestine, wheat would ordinarily be harvested around May or June. Now, Jerome, who lived there, a Bible commentator, he did the Vulgate, one of the church fathers, in the 4th and 5th centuries, he lived for 
decades in this land. And he said that rains only came in the early and latter period. One would come in March when the things were first springing up and one would come in October to prepare the land for the next spring. And outside of that, you'd never have rains. You'd have the early and the latter rain and that's it. So for God to thunder from heaven and to pour rain upon them in May at the very moment when they're going to harvest their crops was unheard of. He calls it, as we see here, some kind of extraordinary thing. It's the wheat harvest. And so they would not expect rain. He shall send thunder and rain, the Lord says through Samuel. Things unknown at that period of the year. Why? Why would God send them this extraordinary, outside of the ordinary weather patterns? Why would God do this? That ye may. That's very important. When you see the words that or that ye may or that he should or that I might, when you see that in your Bible, that's telling you one thing. Here is the purpose for what went before or what follows. There is a purpose for the thunder and the lightning. What is it? That ye may know, that ye may perceive, that ye may see what? That God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Is that what Samuel says? The purpose for this sign is so that you can know that God loves you. No, it's not. Look at it. That ye may perceive and see that your wickedness is great, which ye have done in the sight of the Lord in asking you a king. The purpose of this sign was to grant a perception, a mental vision, a clear picture of what the true nature of their deed was. You know what they thought it was? Good, acceptable, within the bounds of their rights. That's how they wanted to perceive this deed. How did God look on that deed? What did God say about what they had done? Oh, that's good. Hurrah! You're exercising your political rights. Is that what he said? He said it was sinful. He said it was wicked. And the point of the sign and of the sermon of Samuel is so that they may perceive in their mind's eye the proper nature of their conduct. How does God, with his all-seeing eye, look upon this deed? It is not an indifferent exercise of political rights, but a massive moral failing against the whole first table of the law. Look at all the blessings, look at all the privileges, look at all the salvation, and then look at your wickedness and what you did in return. No, this is evil, what you're doing here. I note then that one lawful goal of preaching, as Samuel does here, is to move hearers to repentance, to see their sins, to have a clear vision of the evil that they have done. Why? Well, it's because I want to beat you down and I want you miserable. No. It's so that you may perceive with your mind's eye how God sees the things that you have done so that you may know whether God approves of what you have done or whether God condemns what you have done, because if you don't see that, you will not repent. If you don't know the evil of your deeds and you think that your vices are virtues and you think that your sins are acceptable and pleasing to God and he'll pat you on the back and say, well done for your evil deeds, will you repent of your sins? You will not. You will not forsake your sins. So one goal, not the only goal, 
But one goal of lawful preaching is to move the hearers to repentance, to have a clear vision, to see the evil that they have done. I say then, when you hear the word of God, hear it with an open mind. Think about what you hear. Examine it according to scripture. Be willing, as the Bereans were, to receive the word of God. Sometimes we just think of how they examined the scriptures. It says that with all readiness they received the word of God. Then they examined it. Have a ready will. Have your affections framed to receive what is taught from the word of God. Be ready to hear the promise. Be ready to hear the precept. Now, Timothy is told how to preach. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. That's what you should expect. I should expect, sitting in the pews, reproof, rebuke, exhortation, doctrine. That's what you should expect. And that's what Samuel gave them. That was the purpose of the sign. That was the purpose of his preaching. And notice the good effect, verse 18. All the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Now this is important. The fear of God is rooted in a knowledge of our own sins and what we deserve. There is a natural fear of God, but there is also the fallen state of man to add into that. By nature, we should show reverence and honor and fear to God. When we consider not only is he our creator, he is our judge and our lawgiver, when we consider the sins that we have committed against him and how heinous they are before him and how he detests and despises sin, should we not fear God? Should we not show reverence even more so and be careful to do what he says, considering he could cast us into the lake of fire that burns with brimstone forevermore? Shouldn't we have a little respect for God? And you will notice when pastors palliate the sins of their people and pretend like everything's okay and it's all about love, baby, and Jesus loves you, do they fear God, the people? Do they have reverence for his name? No, they have none. Why? Because they don't think about their sins. They don't think about the judgments. They don't think about the righteousness of God as Samuel preaches it to them. A knowledge of our sin and what we deserve because should cause us to quake at the holiness of God, to show proper respect for him and for his lawful ministers. They didn't just fear the Lord. They also feared Samuel. Why? Because Samuel's some great man. No, well, he was a great man, but that's not why. It's because at the mouth of Samuel, what did they receive? The word of God, the preaching of his law, the promise of the gospel, the duty that they owed to God, the threat of God, the lawgiver. That's why they revered him. That's why they feared him as well as the Lord. And they asked him, pray for thy servants unto the Lord thy God that we die not. Here, I want you to understand, Samuel is a type of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does Christ do now at the right hand of God? He prays, he intercedes for us. Here is the judge, here is the sinner, here is the mediator interceding, coming in between. That's what they're asking Samuel to do. Be our intercessor, be our mediator, be our priest, Pray for us that we may be reconciled to God and not have the wages of sin, which is death. For we have added unto all our sins this evil to ask us a king. Again, this is a free and full confession of their sins. Yes, we've done all the evil you talked about. 
And here's another one we did as well. They're confessing particularly the specific matters that he's pressing upon them. And notice the gospel response in verse 20. Fear not, ye have done all this wickedness. Now, if we ended right there, that would be called libertine theology. Don't be afraid. You've done all this wickedness. No problem. No, that's not true. The answer is a gospel answer. And notice where he goes. Yet turn not aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Here is what free forgiveness of sins is followed up by. What's the next step? Here, my sins are freely forgiven. Fear not. What do I do next? Obey. Do the Lord's will. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Obey his precepts and his commandments. That's the next step. Repentance. God has forgiven your sins. Now turn from them and don't go back to your old ways and don't give up. Don't go aside. Don't turn aside out of the pathway. Do it ex core from the very heart and soul of your being all the way down inside of who you are. Don't let anything have an idol there. Let there be no other gods before him. Serve the Lord with all your heart and turn ye not aside. Do not even begin to turn aside out of this pathway. Why? What's out of the pathway? Anything substantial? Anything important? No. Vain things. Things which cannot profit nor deliver, he says, for they are vain. There is no solid standing apart from Christ, from his means of grace, from his holy word, from his immutable character. Everything else is vanity. And notice verse 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it hath pleased the Lord to make you his people. God's gifts and callings are irrevocable because it pleased him to make you his people. An election is by God's free choice. You can be assured of his ongoing grace, protection, and salvation. Moreover, he says, verse 23, as for me, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. Now this phrase, God forbid, means to put something in the profane regions. Toss that with the profane things. I'm not even wanting to think about that. It's to be despised. It's to be abhorred. God forbid, in other words. I'm not going to sin against God by ceasing to pray for you. But verse 23, I will teach you the good and the right way. He ministers the word to them and he prays for them. That's what he will do. He pledges himself to do his duties as a superior. Question 129 of our larger catechism, what is required of superiors toward their inferiors? Listen, it is required of superiors according to that power they receive from God and that relation wherein they stand to love, pray for, and bless their inferiors, to instruct, counsel, and admonish them, countenancing, commending, and rewarding such as do well, and discountenancing, reproving, and chastising such as do ill. Do you see what Samuel has done this entire chapter and what he promises to do into the future? 
He promises to be their superior, to be their spiritual leader, to be their father in the faith, to instruct them in the truth, to give them counsel, to admonish them, to countenance them when they do what is good, to preach the gospel of peace to them when they repent of their sins and confess their sins, and then to encourage to go on in doing what is good, both by his praying for them, his blessing of them, and his instruction of them. Then in verse 24, we have exhortations to that serious, practical, and sincere religion in obedience to what God has done for them and commanded them to do. And then the threat in verse 25, but if ye still do wickedly, ye shall be consumed, both ye and your king. All of your national purposes will perish. Your prosperity will go down in flames. Your national wickedness will lead to national wasting. And thus far the exposition of 1 Samuel chapter 12.